All right, all right. Go ahead and grab a seat. Tell that person, hey, let's talk after the service. We've got some great baked goods that some from the family here uh, made for us, so don't, don't forget to take some of those home, particularly if uh, your mother doesn't live near and you won't get great. Just take some of those home. Just eat them all day. Invite some friends over. Do whatever you need to do. Um, so fun to be back together again in this sort of unencumbered uh, way post, well, pandemic. This has uh, been a long time coming. It's felt like longer than two years. And so just to see the life in this room, uh, Jesus is alive. He is risen. Passed the test, most of you. And um, just to be here, this is so exciting. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Sedaris. Such an honor and a privilege to get to be here for a time of teaching with you. Um, I don't take it lightly to get to, to open the Word of God and to study it together. It's one of the things that uh, just we cherish so much as a community, that God has given us His perfect Word and that everything in it is, 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 fru- is uh, helpful and fruitful and edifies us and builds us up and transforms us into the people that God has designed us to be. And so we get to do that each and every week and... Uh, if you're new with us, I'm just so glad that you're here. I just want to extend my welcome to you. Um, l- the pandemic has made it so that li- literally you could visit this morning any church around the world. Like every church from like three people uh, in, in the middle of Mongolia, they probably have a live stream. So you could like find them. It's like they're probably better than what we're doing here. But like that you chose to be here, that God has drawn you here. I don't think it's an accident. And so we just want to say thank you that you're here. Um, but we are so much more than just content or just great music. Uh, this, like Ryan said, is a family. The church is the family of God. This is a heavenly body. That's what Sedaris means. We are the heavenly body of Christ on earth. So when we gather together, we're giving a glimpse. If, if uh, you've never been a part of a church or never experienced the joy of a heavenly community, we hope that you experience it today, that you might see something that you were made for, created for, that you would get to be a part of this family as well. So welcome to our family table. Now let's eat some good food. So if you've got a Bible, would you grab it and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. If you don't have a Bible, there's one on the seat backs and uh, underneath the seat in front of you. You can grab that. It looks like this. And if you do grab one of those, we're going to be on page 885, page 885, so you can read along with me. If you don't own a Bible, or you don't own a good Bible, <laughs> or the Bible you own is like only Old English, and you're like, this is hard to read. Take one of these home with you. We've got a whole box of them in the back. <laughs> so take, take it home. Let it be an Easter gift from us to you. We want everyone to have the word of life in their hands in, in a translation that they can understand and read. And so this is called the Christian Standard Bible, and it's, it's meant to be readable in our modern English so that you can understand the word of God so that... So it's not confusing to you. Now, we need the Holy Spirit to help us, and so we pray now, Jesus, that you'd come and bring your Spirit, send your Spirit to illuminate our hearts, to break through any hardness that we might have, that we might see what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, here's the question of the morning. Are you alive? Are you alive? Okay. What, what does that even mean, to be alive? Is this purely a matter of biology? Or is it a matter of function? Or is it a matter of the will? What, what does it mean to be alive? Are you alive? I want you to try to think of a time in your life right now. Just kind of like, if you need to close your eyes, just think of a time in your life where you would say you were most alive. You, this Whatever the essence is of aliveness, you, you, you had it. Think about that. Not the most comfortable you've ever been, or the most even necessarily secure you've ever felt. Not necessarily the most amped up you've ever felt with shots of adrenaline and endorphins throwing through your body. Don't think about that, but, but alive. Like what, that time when you just felt like this is aliveness. Does a time, does a moment, does a season pop into your mind? If you've got a pen and paper... Write it down. What was it about that time? What were the complementing factors and feelings and 
circumstances that made you say this was aliveness? What were those things? Just take a moment. Write those down. Today we're going to consider deeply what being alive could mean in its fullest sense. And I want you to ask yourself throughout today, am I, am I really alive or am I merely existing? Today we're going to look back 2,000 years ago to a 2,000-year-old story about a man named Jesus who was executed by the Roman ruling authorities who ruled his homeland. They were foreigners ruling the Jewish people. And at the request of Jewish leaders, his fellow countrymen, Jesus, because he was a threat to those religious leaders, because their power and their control was at stake. They felt like it was slipping away. They had him arrested. They had him arrested. A man who did nothing wrong. A man who healed people, helped people, taught people that they were worth something, valuable, no matter who they were, that told them of a God who cared for them and loved them and had sent him into the world to save them. They arrested him. Spoiler alert. This Jesus, after being arrested, was falsely convicted, and he was hung on a Roman cross. And he breathed his last breath on a Friday evening, just before sunset. And his lifeless corpse lay entombed all day Saturday and a grave cut into the hillside of a giant, and a giant stone rolled over to cover it. And on Sunday morning, just after sunrise, the same Jesus was found very much breathing again. He was very much alive. And that's why we're all sitting here today. Not only was this twist in the story a trajectory change important to Jesus himself, he was dead and now he was alive. He was lifeless and now he was full of life. Of course, for him, the aliveness meant something, but also for every single human being who hears of, sees of, witnesses this apparent resurrection of this man I'll claim that their life is forever changed as well. That they can and will experience a type of aliveness that they never did before hearing of, seeing, witnessing the resurrection of Jesus. Throughout history, we're going to look at the very first people to see him, a group of women. And flowing down through all of history, every single human being can experience the same kind of life and aliveness that those first women experienced when they too see and hear of the risen Jesus. When they believe in their heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead. When they proclaim with conviction and know he is risen and mean it. They too can experience an aliveness that is not possible in any other way. Only through the resurrection of Jesus can this type of aliveness be your liveness. So I'm going to attempt to do three things today. I'm going to try to go fast for you all because it is Easter. Plans, things to do. So we'll see how I do. Pray for me. Part number one. I'm going to explain or try to explain aliveness as we see it through the lens of the resurrection account. Part two, I'm going to explore how aliveness and the biblical concept of blessedness are quite connected. And then part three, I'm going to help us Try to understand how to come alive, how to experience blessedness in our lives today. So let's begin our conversation by looking at these very first human beings to lay eyes on the empty tomb and the post-death but very much alive Jesus of Nazareth. 
It's an unexpected choice that God has picked. A group of women, a group of nobodies. People who wouldn't even be allowed in, the, in, 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 a, in a Roman court to give testimony. And God says, I'm going to pick them. They're going to be the first to come alive through the resurrection. So let's read it together. Matthew 26, or 28, verses 1 to 10. Here we go. After the Sabbath, that's Saturday, as the first day of the week was dawning, that's Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, that's Mary from the town of Magdalene, and the other Mary, this is most likely Mary, the mother of James, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, went to view the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord, descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled away the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken. These are Roman military personnel. They were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the women, don't be afraid, because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. Why? For he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead, and indeed, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. What do they do? (laughs) What do the women do? What? What do they do? Verse 8. So, departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, what did they do? They ran to tell his disciples. This would be the other 11. Judas had betrayed Jesus, so there's 11 thinking Jesus is dead, that their lives are changed. Go and tell them the news. Verse 9. Then, just then, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus told them, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and there... They will see me. Whoa. Okay. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take one verse, verse 8, and I'm going to show you how it is paradigmatic of what aliveness feels like. Ready? Verse 8. Read it again. So, departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell the disciples the news. (laughs) The news. Don't even say good news here. It's just news because it's terrifying and exciting. It's all sorts of things. So let's break that down. Here we go. Ready? First word. So. Not unimportant. So. Aliveness always comes in response to something God has done. Some message God has brought into your life that you had nothing to do with. Jesus came into these women's life. This message came from the angel. Jesus rose from the dead apart from anything these women did. They just experienced the power of God at work in the world, the message of God coming into their lives. So, they did something. That's how it always starts. Aliveness always comes from the outside, the source of life, God intervening in your life. So, what will you do? Second phrase. They went... But they went with fear. Being fully alive can be quite terrifying. Which is why we like so often to numb ourselves. I do a prayer drive through the city every Sunday morning and I pray. This Sunday morning, and I do this every Sunday morning, I like to roll my windows down. One of the things that happened during the pandemic that I love, if you remember, we said when you're worshiping at home two years ago, Easter at home, I said roll the windows down play the worship loud, worship windows open. And so I do that. I drive through the town. Some people give me weird looks, but I worship (laughs) windows down. And I drive through, and I was driving through my neighborhood, and there's uh, a pot shop. And this is at 7.30 a.m., and it was open. 
What in the world is a pot shop doing open at 7.30 a.m. on Easter morning? The world is trying to numb themselves because being alive is terrifying if you don't have these other things, if you don't know who God is. It's terrifying, and that's okay. Third, third phrase, but they also had what? Great joy. Great joy. Being fully alive also brings great, unimaginable, unexpected joy. It's like giddiness. And if you've never experienced this in relationship to God in your life, I hope you do. I pray you do. I hope you experience the giddiness of God, His presence, His peace, His power. And they were giddy. They had great joy, but they were also terrified at the same time. It's this weird combination. Fourth thing, what'd they do? So they ran. Preached about Forrest Gump a few weeks ago. Fits here. They ran. Just run. (laughs) I'm terrified, but I'm happy, so I start running. Just run. Run where? Run to do the thing that God told you to do. These women now had a calling, a purpose, a meaning that they did not have before Jesus showed up, risen from the dead. And they ran because they were alive to something new, somewhere to go, something to do that was beyond them. So let's take a closer look now at these women and their aliveness. With great joy, with fear, they ran because of what God had revealed to them. Let's take a closer look. I call this uh, the ABCs of aliveness. So these female disciples of Jesus, they'd been walking with Jesus for a long time. They'd heard a lot of his teaching, and he taught from the scriptures, which were for them the Old Testament scriptures. Now we have the Old and the New Testament. They only had the Old Testament because Jesus inaugurated the New. And, and, and so they would have heard about this idea of resurrection. It is in the Old Testament, but it's very uh, confusing and vague, and they, they probably never imagined that Jesus would actually rise from the dead. Which is funny because he said he was going to do this. But they're probably like, ah, he's probably speaking in metaphor, a parable. He did that a lot. He's probably not actually going to rise, even though they'd been taught. That's maybe some of you today. Maybe you've been taught about the resurrection, but this is a, it's a, it's, it's, it's an idea about a new start and a fresh... No, these women were the same as you. They really didn't believe resurrection was even possible until, until... They saw it with their own eyes. So that's the first. That's the A of aliveness. The thrill of encountering a previously unthinkable revelation. And you're alive. Wait, what? I'm alive. Now, let me point out something very important. As we said, but they were terrified. Aliveness doesn't mean that you're fearless. Aliveness and fearlessness are not synonyms. Sometimes we think that they are. We look at people who fly off large you know, hills at the Winter Olympics and we think, those people are alive. No, there's something wrong in their brain. <laughs> they literally, it's not, like, you can, like studies have been done. It's, it's, you can't even practice. It's just there. Fearlessness is not ungodliness. I always tell this to my son, Grayson. Bravery is not fearlessness. Bravery is being fearful and still moving forward. And these women have that kind of terror and fear. We can't underestimate the fear that they were experiencing. But what happens? Jesus meets them in the midst. Aliveness is being so terrified, but knowing that God is with you, that he is your shepherd, that he walks with you, even through the valley of the shadow of death. He will not leave you. And these women experienced that promise in person through Jesus Christ. So fear is a part of being alive, but the peace that surpasses understanding is only available to those who have met the risen Jesus. But it's aliveness. So that's B. They were moved by God towards something that was challenging them and even terrifying them, but they were comforted in their fear by Jesus himself who gave them that peace so that they might be brave in the face of terror. They were alive. Then, you see that Jesus gives them an unmerited honor. 
They didn't do anything to be chosen to be the first messengers. It's unmerited. He just gives them this great gift, this great honor to get to be the first messengers of the resurrection. He just gives it to them. They were given new purpose, a new station in life. Life had new meaning that it never had before. And they couldn't have contrived the kind of meaning that they were given in this moment. They gained something unattainable in any other way besides given by the God of glory. And he just gives it to them. And now, not because they are of some family name, of some great pedigree, of some intelligence, with some diploma, not because of their own hard work, but just because God chose to give them purpose and calling, their whole world is now reshaped. They're now living in a purposeful world. And you've got to think, these women are now more alive in this moment than perhaps anyone who has ever existed up to this point. Because they have an ultimate reason to live. Just moments before, hours before, they had none of that. They doubted everything they knew. They were probably in almost utter despair and they walked to the tomb out of tradition that this should be the thing we should do to honor his dead body. And then all of a sudden, life. Not just Jesus' life. Life for them comes alive. That's the, that's the third. That's C. A, B, C. C is the realization that you have been given a responsibility for something more valuable than just yourself. That's aliveness. So aliveness feels like a thrill of encountering a previously unthinkable revelation. There's a lot or a little bit of sheer terror And then there's the realization that you've been given a responsibility of something more valuable than just yourself. And these women have it. And they are so alive in this moment. Are you alive? Are you alive like this? Does it feel like every breath you've been given has a reason and a purpose attached to it? That you wake up in the morning and you know your why. You know what to do today. You know how to determine if today was a success. Do you have that? Most people don't. These women had it for the rest of their lives. Because they met the risen Jesus. So I could put it another way. Let me extrapolate on aliveness. Aliveness, to be alive, is to know that you were created on purpose. You are not an accident. You are not inconsequential. God had you in mind before you were born. Do you know that? To be alive is to know that you were created for a purpose. And that purpose is within your reach. It's not unattainable. It's to know that life and your living has actual meaning. It's to know that something a value has been given to you that you can share with the world. It's to know that your life, no matter how hard, no matter how great, either in the highs or the lows, that none of it is in vain. It's to know that the hard, the scary, the painful, the suffering, all that stuff of life is purposeful, and moves you towards a planned end point. It's to know that even death cannot rob you of this purpose and your ultimate destiny. And I don't know how you get any of that without knowing the resurrected Jesus. These women were given a gift. A gift of aliveness. And I just want you to make a note of the time frame it took for them to come alive. This happens fast, doesn't it? God can bring you to life in an instant. It happened in an instant for them. It can happen in an instant for you. 
I want to share a few of my high water moments. I asked you to think of those earlier, of the ABCs of aliveness. I remember sitting uh, in a cabin at a Young Life camp up in Canada called Malibu as a high school. I'd been a Christian for some time, but I had never taken hold of the, uh, of the calling God had given me to share about who he was to me and what he's done. I remember one day back in the cabin time just feeling the overwhelming sense of God saying, share, and I shared. And it was terrifying because I had brought my buddies, most of whom I'd kept my faith kind of quiet. They knew I was serious. They knew I was a churchgoer. But I never shared how much I believed. And God said, it's time to share. And I was terrified. But God had moved. And he was with me. And I shared. And it was great joy. I can still feel the aliveness of that moment. Saying my vows on my wedding day. And then hearing my wife say hers, wondering (laughs) if she would reciprocate. The unthinkable revelation when I heard, you are now husband and wife. The unthinkable revelation of that. I am now a husband. Allie is now my wife. She actually went through with it. She actually married me. It's unthinkable. It was the worst decision of her life, but praise God, God makes us do crazy things. And, and, and it was true. And, and then the sheer terror hit me. Oh my goodness, this is a daughter of God. And it's my responsibility to care for her and to know her like I know my own body and to give my life for her like Christ has given his life for the church. The terror of that, if that doesn't terrify you, you're reading the wrong Bible. I was terrified, and I had great joy at the same time, and I knew I had a purpose and a calling for something so much more valuable than just myself. I was alive. I hope you're alive in your marriages. When I held my firstborn son, Grayson, in the hospital for the first time, I had revelation. I'm a father. I had terror. I'm a father? God, do you know how selfish I am? (laughs) I had purpose. And God gave me a peace to walk forward. I was so alive. The day my sister died, in 2007, the first drumbeat of what would become the song of this church, God sent me a message from Kim, from God, tell my friends to consider Jesus. It was a new revelation, a word that I had never considered, a mission I never thought would be part of my story. It was an unthinkable revelation. And I had so much fear. Why me? I am not the right messenger. I am a CPA. Do you know what that means? Put them in a closet, check in on them like every two days or so, make sure they're alive. That's what the CPA does. I'm not meant to do this, the fear, but a clear sense that if I don't do it, no one else will. And God gave me the peace, he gave me the courage, he made me brave to step up and share that message. At her memorial, at the Consider concerts and the years that followed, and to start this church. I was alive, even in the grim and unthinkable face of death. How is that possible? The first time I said, welcome to Sedaris Church, grab your Bibles and open with me to this passage. And every subsequent time I've said that over the last seven years, the thrill of new revelation, I could tell you, friends, of opening this Bible and saying, you're going to preach and teach this passage this week. The thrill of that, God gives me new, unthinkable revelation every week without fail. I can't believe it happens. Every week I say, not this week. He probably won't give me anything, and he always does. Sometimes it's in the middle of the night. Woke up Wednesday night, 2 a.m., and he flooded me with today's sermon. I couldn't go to sleep until I texted a lot. I could show you my text messages. I'm a terrible texter normally at 2 a.m. I I didn't even correct most of the typos. (laughs) So if I say something wrong, that's the problem. I mean, he always brings me new, fresh revelation, but it's always sheer terror to stand up here and be responsible to not 
say something untrue about the God of truth. It's terror. And he meets me and he says, it's okay, I'm with you. And even if you misspeak, my spirit will filter those words. But I know I have a purpose and a meaning. And my job is to help communicate God's word to you. So that you can understand it. So that it can change you. And I'll tell you, I feel more alive preparing for that task, doing that task, than in any other time in my life. Now, let me be very, very clear. Because I can say all that, because I'm the only one standing up here talking right now. I'm not saying that you have to become a pastor to be alive. I'm not saying that you have to become a husband or a wife to be alive. I'm not saying you have to be a parent to be alive. What I'm saying is, you have to have an encounter with the risen Jesus to become alive. Because when he meets you and gives you your task, your purpose, your meaning, you too will come alive, whatever that is. Think about this. Jesus himself had no wife. He had no kids. He had no home. He had no church. He did not have a pastorate. He walked around in the wilderness and told people about the good news of Jesus, or the good news of himself, the coming of the kingdom of God. That's what he did. Anyone can do that. That's the first big idea. Here it is. We can be truly alive now only because of the resurrection of Jesus. It's the only way, I think, to be truly alive in the way I'm talking about it. Part two. The connection between aliveness and blessedness. You've heard this. Bless you. Bless you. Be blessed. What are we talking about? Let me say a blessing for the food. What are we talking about? What does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? I've been reflecting a lot over the past two weeks. I have to apologize to Ryan and Ty. I'm going to say some things that I have been ranting on in the office for weeks now. I feel compelled to share it. What does it mean to be blessed? What do we mean when we say that term? What does God mean when he uses that term? And... uh, I hope it blesses you to know what blessing is. You could say this. To be most alive is to be most blessed. Or the way I like to say it is blessed. (laughs) To be most alive is to be most blessed. So what does this term mean, blessed? We've got a world definition, and we've got God definition. So where do you go when you need to know the world's definition of a word? Of course, you go to the socials, to the instas, to the gram. I don't even know anymore how to say it. I know you don't go to Facebook anymore. You go (laughs) something else, but I'm not sure. Is Instagram still a thing? I went to Instagram, and I looked up hashtag blessed. Okay, let's see what the world thinks blessedness is. That's what you do. This is what the world, it's, it's maybe the only great thing about social media. You can figure out what the world thinks the word blessed means. So I looked up 142 million posts have hashtagged blessed. <laughs> so I'm looking for patterns. I can't look at them all. So I'm scrolling through patterns. Are there any patterns? Now, some of the patterns I can totally relate to and I would agree with. I see engagement photos, engagement ring photos, wedding day photos, stylized baby bumps. I got my own baby bump. Okay, so I'm, I'm blessed, you know. So God has blessed me, okay, okay. So we got all that stuff. I recognize that. Then there's like a lot of strange patterns. Like you wouldn't believe, you could look it up later. It's strange, like lots of bodybuilding photos. What? <laughs> that's weird. Like, what do you mean? Like, that's just a lot of hard work and oil. How is that blessedness? Anyhow, maybe anointing, I don't know. Okay, so... You got bodybuilder selfies, weird. You got a lot of handbags, purses, clutches, and shoes. Eh, okay. I don't own a lot of that, I, but, you know, bless it. Strange, but okay. Now, lots of women in fancy evening gowns. Is that still a term? Evening, they look like evening gowns. Why are there so many evening gowns? I guess this is... What does it all mean? Well, I think the world's definition, and to be honest, the way I used the word blessed for most of my Christian life was material fortune. I am fortunate, lucky to have this shoe, this purse, maybe these muscles. I'm lucky. I have been materially blessed. 
And even as Christians, we can say that God has blessed me. He has given me lots of money, a good job, a great family. This is how we've thought of blessing. Now, a lot of that is true. I'm definitely not saying those things can't be considered blessing from God. But is it blessedness? Is it aliveness in the way that God has promised? I don't know. Let's look at the Scripture. Let's see what God's Word says, how He uses this term. And there's two Greek New Testament words that are used, and you can find these translated back into the use of the word blessed in the Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew. There's a, there's a translation of the Hebrew Bible that was very, 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 very old called the Septuagint. And so you see them use these same words for blessed in the Old Testament, but we're going to look at New Testament passages. Well, we don't have time to look at everything. Two words. One is eulogo, which means to, bestow, to be bestowed with favor or provided with special benefits. Eulogo. The other is markerios, and it means when speaking of transcendent beings, and that's what I believe Christians and the people of God are, creating God's image, transcendent beings, um, it means to be viewed as privileged or blessed. So these are the two words you see used quite frequently in the New Testament. Anytime in your English translation, you see the word blessed. Sometimes it's translated happy. Sometimes it's translated lucky. Sometimes fortunate. But, but most translations will, at least the, ones we're, the passages we're looking at, will translate that blessed. So first passage I want to look at, Luke 1, 26 through 35. And also uh, jump to verse 42 after it. So let me read it. Um, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph at the house of David, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, blessed woman. The Lord is with you, but she uh, she was deeply troubled by the statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. This is an angel. Uh, th- then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. You're going to see this over and over again. Blessedness tied with an eternal timeline. His kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be since I have had no sexual relations with any man? This is an unthinkable revelation that never crossed her mind that you could get pregnant without ever having sex. The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One will be born. He will be called the Son of God. Now, fast forward to verse 42. Mary now goes and visits, she's really hiding out, with her relative Elizabeth, who is also miraculously with child, John the Baptist. Shout out to JB. And... Elizabeth sees her, Mary coming up. And then it says this, verse 42, Then Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed, you logo, blessed are you among all women, and your child will be blessed, you logo, as well. Big idea. You see the elements, don't you? You see the thrill of revelation of an unthinkable new truth. But you see the fear accompanying it because the task seems overwhelming. Then you see the comfort of God and his messenger to help Mary step forward in bravery. Not without fear, but despite her fear. She moves forward into the joyful purpose that God has given her. The most amazing purpose to be the mother of God's son. The God-man Jesus Christ, now born to an otherwise unimportant, unnoticed, irrelevant, no one would ever know her name, and now every other person I meet has a middle name, Mary. (laughs) Raise your hand if your middle name is Mary. Okay, you're breaking my (laughs) straw poll. I meet so many Marys. Okay. 
So now she's the most famous woman that's ever lived. She's blessed. That's the term God uses. Did Mary live an easy life? The answer is no. Mary watched her son, her firstborn son, be crucified for a crime he did not commit and die the most agonizing death. She stood there at the cross and watched it. She did not have an easy life. People called her the names you would call somebody that gets pregnant out of wedlock. She heard these insults probably her whole life. They called her crazy. They called her a fraud, a fake, because she was telling a story that God, not her fiancé, impregnated her. She didn't live an easy life. She lived a blessed life. She knew her purpose, the thrill of it, the joy, the terror, but she knew God had asked her to do it. She was alive. She was blessed. Second story. Second passage. Matthew 25, verse 31 to 36. This is Jesus speaking now. He says this. He's speaking of the end times. when he'll, He's going to come back. He hasn't died yet. He hasn't risen from the dead yet. So it's probably confusing for his disciples. He says this. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Okay? But... Uh, Before him, he will gather all the nations, and he will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed. You logo. Blessed by who? My father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Do you see it? First, the connection to work and calling. There is things for us to do, friends. And those things are asked of us by our Creator God, by our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, to go do these things and know there's a reason for your life that is beyond yourself. Second, notice the future blessing. The blessing, we don't know what this life will hold, but we do know that God is going to give us an inheritance, which is His kingdom. On my morning prayer drive, went up to Cary Park, Windows open, blasting, probably annoying some people. That's okay. It's a great song. And I'm looking out, Cary Park, if you've never been up to Cary Park, and I'm looking at downtown, and downtown is beautiful, it's gorgeous, it's man-made. Right behind it, it was clear, I saw Mount Rainier. Who made that? God made that. What will last? The mountain or the city? The mountain. His inheritance is greater than even that of Senor Bezos. Whose inheritance do you want? Jeff Bezos says, listen, I'll give you everything when I die. Now, problem is he's going to spend it all in rocket fuel. But let's imagine he didn't. He saved it all up and he gave it to you. Would you want that or do you want Mount Rainier? You want God's inheritance? See, this is the blessing and the promise, but it's not necessarily for this life, but the life to come. So the hopeful promise, this one, was given before Jesus even died. Now, imagine when he died They might have thought, we've lost that promise. That was a lie that's never going to happen. And then they saw him risen from the dead. And it came back like that. That hope, that promise was alive again. And alive in a way that it couldn't have been alive before he died and came back to life. Because even before, they're still wondering, but what if he dies? How is he going to come and sit on his throne if he dies? Like everybody else, he does seem to be aging a bit. (laughs) praying a lot more, going off by himself. He seems to be getting tired because he's fully man. They're prob- what if he dies? Now they've seen him risen from the dead and they know not even death can keep them from the promises of God. Aliveness in a way that couldn't be experienced before the death and resurrection of Jesus for his disciples and for us. Third, third passage, John thirteen fifteen to 17 says this. For I have given you an example 
that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, say, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Guess when Jesus said this? At the Last Supper. Right after he had spent a long time washing his own disciples' feet. Blessed are you if you know these things and you do these things. Blessed are you. You are blessed when you have clear instruction and a clear model for how to live your life because you are no longer confused, my friends. You know what godliness looks like. You know what true leadership looks like. You look at the servant king, Jesus, washing his disciples' feet, and you do these things as well. And you can know you're doing what you should do. You know how how blessed you are to know that? To not be constantly wondering, am I doing this the right way? Am I, am I pastoring the right way? Am I being a good mother or a father? Am I being a good friend? We have a clear instruction and a clear model in the person of Jesus. And then we can know, we're blessed to know, if we do these things that he has revealed to us, we can know we're living life well. And to know that is to be blessed. First Peter 3.14 says this, But even if you should suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Skip forward to verse 17. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Do you see it? Even if you suffer, and we're not talking about, you know, somebody said, oh, you still go to church. That's weird. We're talking about give your life. We're talking about being tortured. We're talking about 100,000 Christians still to this day lose their life for their faith each year. Even if you suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Why? Well, because you know you're being just like your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you know that even if this world puts your body to death, God will raise that body to new life. In the Spirit, you will become alive Death, where's your sting? Death, where's your victory? Swallowed up by the cross and the resurrection. To know that, even in your suffering, you can say, I am blessed. Finally, let's skip ahead here to the Beatitudes. The most famous of the blessedness passages, Matthew 5, 3 to 11. Let me read it to you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is Jesus speaking in his most famous uh, speech on the sermon, uh, the sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger for and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the poor, uh, pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me, Jesus says. Be glad and rejoice Because your reward is great in heaven. The Beatitudes only make sense when we see blessedness as this otherworldly realization of something more important than wealth, than comfort, 
than power, than self-righteousness, than the easy life, than dominating others, than manipulation for gain, than being conquerors, than popularity, for there is something so much greater to be had. We are given a new purpose, new meaning, new calling, a future reward, an inheritance of life in God's kingdom. We are called sons and daughters of the Most High. All of these blessed future realities blast then unavoidably into our present consciousness when we come to be witnesses of the truth of the resurrection. When we see Him in His authentic and full glory risen from the grave, scars and all, Alive, victorious, on the other side of his saving act of redemption. All that future becomes to us present joy. Present peace. Present blessedness. Present aliveness. Only when we can say, yes, he is risen. Then we become alive. The most alive we could possibly be in a world full of pain and darkness and disappointment and confusion. When we see the risen Jesus, we can be alive. I want that. I want that for you. I want that for me. I want to be alive in this way. So so it seems we have all these examples of these divergent meanings. And it doesn't mean that God isn't gifting us things in this life. Maybe God's gifted you a great job and you make a great salary or you have an earthly inheritance. It doesn't mean that's not from God. But I don't think you can be blessed in the way I'm talking about unless you understand that you are blessed to be a blessing. Genesis chapter 12, first book of the Bible, God tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you with descendants as numerous as the stars, but I'm going to do that so that you can bless all other nations. So even in those things, a great marriage, kids, the blessing of money, all of those things, if you see them as for a purpose, to be a blessing, then you too can be blessed. You may not have those things, you might only get suffering. You too can be blessed. You see, there's no barrier to the blessedness of Christ. In fact, perhaps the only thing that could become a barrier is a blessing that's not used to be a blessing. I think sometimes the greatest blessings in this life can become a curse. I'll just give you one for instance. If God has given you much monetary wealth, if you don't figure out very quickly as early in your life as possible, had to turn that around to be a blessing, that money will kill you. It will own you. It will destroy you. It will distract you from the greater blessedness of knowing God, depending on Him, humbling yourself before Him, seeking His face. It will become a curse to you. It's not wrong to have money. But if you don't see that blessing as to be a blessing, that may be the thing that kills you. If you find a way to use it as a blessing, guess what? You'll come alive. To know that God has given you stewardship over his things so that you can go bless others. What a joy, terror to be a good steward of that. How am I doing, Lord? But a great joy. And he will comfort you in knowing, even if you make a wrong step, there is mercy and there is grace. But until you do that, I worry. And I know where a lot of us work. I know the kinds of jobs many of us have. I know that our wealth in this room will grow. God, help us. God, use our blessing to bring life to us, not death. So back to our list. When... We see blessedness as it really is. When we accept and we believe that our life and any material blessing 
is, is given to us so that we can be a blessing and that blessedness really does extend far beyond the 700, I, looked, I did the math on this, 750 million breaths we'll take in this life. That's how many you'll take if you live 85 years. 750 million breaths. That it extends way beyond that. Breath extends way beyond that. If we know that, because we've experienced the resurrection of Jesus as true, then our plausibility structures explode with opportunity of how we might live this life, of what we might care about and pursue in this life. And so back to our list, and I'll I'll say this is true of aliveness as it is of blessedness. To know that you were created on purpose. You're not an accident. You're not inconsequential. To know that you were created for a purpose, that you have a reason to live, and you can reach that purpose if you ask God for his help. To know that life and your living actually has meaning, to know that you have something of value to share with the world, to know that your life, both the highs and the lows, are not in vain. To know that even the hard, scary, painful suffering that will undoubtedly come is actually part of God's purpose and plan to move you to some end he has in store for you. And to know that even death cannot rob you of that purpose, cannot rob you of that destiny, is to be blessed. In the same way that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was blessed. In the same way that Mary of Magdalene was blessed to get to meet the risen Jesus on the road. You can be blessed in that same way. You can be alive in that same way. And so what are, what are just some practical ways? Because <laughs> I want to give you a couple of practical things. I want to change the way we do sneezing. Any Seinfeld fans out there? Greatest episode of Seinfeld. Why do we say God bless you when someone sneezes? George Costanza would say, because that's what we were taught, that's the social proper etiquette. We've got to say it. We've been taught it. It's, it's the right thing to do. Jerry would say, I don't know. I mean, if we're trying to make people feel good, why don't we say something like, you're so good looking. <laughs> Every time. So what is it? Are, is it etiquette? Is it like we're trying to make people feel good? If you do a little bit of study on this, as I did, you find out that uh, for European Christians, when the first plague weakened the Christian Roman Empire, this is about, uh, when was this? This is like in uh, 590. Uh, The Pope at that time, Gregory the Great, he believed that a sneeze was an early sign of the plague. So he commanded Christians to respond to the sneeze with a blessing. Did you ever know that? Now what kind of blessing are we talking about? The blessing of making them feel good? Are you praying for their health? That they would recover? None of these things are bad things. Is it polite? Yes, because it's awkward if nobody says anything and someone sneezes. So what is it? One New York, New York Times article uh, reported a gal named uh, Kaylee Kaminsky. I guess she gave her name, so I'm saying it, to, to be a part of this. Uh, she's from Orlando. She recently taught herself uh, to stop saying God bless you and to start saying Gesundheit. Gesundheit is German uh, for uh, good health. Now she goes on to say, it's probably important for me to explain why I train myself not to say God bless you. I'm an atheist, <laughs> and I find it offensive when someone says, God bless you. So I've trained myself to say, Gesundheit. So what is it? What are we trying to communicate when someone sneezes? I'm going to give us something we can do because you've been sitting in the sermon. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> but if you say, bless you, if you say, God bless you, let it be a prayer over that person because it is socially acceptable. Let it be a prayer of them. You don't have to tell them you're doing that, but you're praying over them that they would find the thrill of the revelation of the risen Jesus, that they would find the sheer terror of knowing that their life is not about themselves but about God's big plan and the joy of knowing that they have a purpose and a meaning that is far greater than they ever thought and that they have a responsibility to carry and live out and care for something of great value like they never thought they had. What if every time somebody sneezed, you said that and you thought that over them as you prayed, God bless you? Try it. See that how God changes your heart towards that person, towards the world. May God bless this world like he's blessed us. What about when you pray at a meal? When you bless the food, what are you praying for? That it tastes good? That the person who made it feels recognized? All those things are good. 
I'm going to tell you, bless it in a different way. Bless it that it might give you, that food might give you the energy to live out the purpose that is far greater than you, that God has given you, to step into the fear of the mission he's called you to. God, would this food, take this food and, and thank you for it, that we have it, but help us use it for your purposes that others might come to know of the resurrection. What if you prayed like that at your meals? How would that change your heart towards God's mission in the world? So just know this. When I pray for you, when I say blessings, I don't mean gesundheit. <laughs> I'm not even doing it just to be nice. I'm praying, God bless you. May you come to be alive in the way that these women are alive Would you come to know that you are not an accident, that you have a purpose, that there is meaning to your life, and no suffering can take that away? God has you. When I say bless you, that's what I mean. Eddie Vedder, the great Seattle musician, if you don't know who he is, lead man of of, uh, Pearl Jam, the very first song Pearl Jam ever uh, recorded together, made them a huge hit, is called Alive. You know the song? Maybe you don't. That's okay. Look it up. I'm still alive. Hey, I. I'm still alive. Now, most people think that's a positive song. I did a little research. This song is about a young man who thinks that his stepfather is his father until just weeks before his biological father comes into his life, says, I'm dying, and he only knows him for a short time. And and the song says, my mother sat me down and told me this, that my father, who I thought was my father, was not actually my father, and that my real biological father is dying. And I said to her, what, I'm still alive. Now I have to deal with this. How is this helping me? And really, it's, and if you don't know the 1990s grunge scene in Seattle, it's it's an existential cry of why do I have to live through this mess? Why do I have to still be alive? And, and uh, Eddie Vedder in a Storytellers, VH1 Storytellers episode explains how this song for him was a curse because this is part of his story. Why do I have to be alive? Why do I have to keep living? Why can't I be like my biological dad who got to get off of this godforsaken land? And he says, that was a curse song for me. And then everyone in my concert started singing it like it was a blessing song. I'm still alive, they would sing. He said they were dancing in the aisles. I'm still alive. And he's like, oh my gosh, they don't understand it. Just tough to be an artist. (laughs) Nobody gets you, okay? Nobody gets you. It's okay. You'll be all right. God gets you. Okay, if you're an artist, God gets you. But anyhow, he said, you know what? Over the years, my curse has been turned into a blessing. He has three beautiful young children now. He still lives in Seattle. Three girls. It's like Pastor Ryan, girl dad. He's alive, and he's happy to be alive. Here's why I bring this up. Some of you might just be existing. You might hear that song as Eddie Vedder meant it. Why am I still alive? Why do I have to live with the curse of this world and this darkness and this confusion? Why am I still alive? And the risen Jesus wants to meet you on your way, and show you that being alive is way more than you think. It's way better than you think. It's way fuller than you think. It's something you can't even imagine until you meet the risen Jesus. That even in your suffering, even in the brokenness of your family, even in the dreams that have been shattered, still being alive is the best possible thing that you could imagine. Do you want to be alive? Do you want to be blessed in the way that God says you can be? All you have to do, you're holding on to something like this. Go ahead, just do this with your hands. You're holding on to, so you've got something. You think some blessing God's given you. Actually, put your, put your hands face down. That's the right way to do it. You're holding on so tight. If I lose this, if I lose this job, if I lose this relationship, um, if, I, if I lose this house, if I lose this money, if I lose this retirement, if I lose it, I, I, I won't want to be alive. The upside down kingdom, God says, turn your fists like this. 
And he says, whatever's in there, whatever you've got in there, whatever promise you're holding on to for a little bit of hope, a little bit of life, he says, I want you to just, just release your fingers. Just do it right now. Just, just release them a little bit like this. He says, I want you to release palms facing heaven. Let it go. Let it go. And this is the great exchange that happens. Once you've said, okay, take what I thought was blessing and put something else in. God says, okay, I'll take that. I'll take the fear of being without money, with being without husband, being without wife, being without child. I'll take all that fear and I'm going to put something else in your hands. I'm going to put something better in your hands. A new kind of blessedness to know that whether or not God gives you those things, you can be fully alive. In your hands, he puts forgiveness from the guilt of sin, from the shame. He takes that away, and he gives you his love. He gives you peace. He gives you his purposes. He gives you a sense of eternity, that this life is not all that there is. That's what he gives you. And the question is, do you want that exchange? Do you want to live like this, where God gifts you blessedness on his terms, in his way, on his timeline? Or do you want to hold on to what you've got? That's the choice. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to do it yourself. How do you want to live? Let's pray.